0: Last week, we were looking at the epistle to the Ephesians as a whole. (laughs) The figure that we introduced, and which we still have before us, is the figure of a large building, two wings, one on either side of the entrance, and each wing having seven apartments or rooms. That is only just a way of representing in a pictorial form that the epistle to the Ephesians divides into two parts, One, the great revelation of doctrine; the other, the equally wonderful revelation of corresponding practice; and united in the middle by the prayer that leads us step by step until we are filled unto all the fullness of God. I don't think that ought to be difficult for us to keep in mind. Uh, The literary structure is just visualized in that form. (laughs) Whatever evening we We are approaching the sections of this great epistle a little bit more in detail. But before we do, the opening verses must be given a passing consideration. They are outside the seven sections. They introduce the epistle as a whole, even as a benediction at the end rounds the whole epistle lot, not one part of it. Should we just read these verses? Two verses. Paul and Apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the faith which are the experts, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace right to you and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You do know that it is very wise when you're reading any letter just a glimpse at the envelope. I know we don't do it, but we find ourselves biting into our things of patience and marmalade, and we say, oh, I'm sorry, I've opened your letter. Never done it? Well, you've done it in the things of God, anyhow. Look at the number of people who try to put in the practice. some of the teaching of the epistles of James, by James, and they've never glimpsed the envelope which says, to the twelve tribes, that is a broad preaching. Somebody of the you letter. You're permitted to read it by the mercy of God, but it a sense of Now this this is said. To earth people with certain characteristics. How far are they to up? Well, we are certainly not living in Ephesus. But when we read the Acts of the Apostles, we discover that Ephesus was the one place in the 20th chapter of the Acts to which the Apostles uh, gave a hint of a future ministry associated with prison. And he told them that the ministry that he would already accomplished was finished and I should see his face no more. So, that brings up a little bit in the line. We've reached that position too. But there is another thing. The, the revised text leaves out the word Ephesus. And some of the manuscripts which we have, valuable ones, instead of having the word Ephesus, have got a blank. And then some of them, like uh, the sign Euthyphus, He's put it back again in another handwriting. But it's evident that the word was once there because the blank is there. Now the reason for that seems to be a simple one: that this epistle to the Ephesians was the announcement of a new line of teaching, and therefore it wasn't to be limited to the church Ephesus. It was sent to them. But just as in the epistle to the Colossians. Paul said, now you see the epistle that was written to the, the Laodiceans and let them see yours, and interchange, a change, which was very obvious. So, it looks as from the earliest time, this epistle was recognised as one that has circulated. And so the manuscripts we have today, in most cases, have gone a blank. Well, now that's very lovely, because I believe we shall begin to realise we could put the chapel of the open book in. And I wouldn't let you do it, of course, but here we are. If we're a company of four outside Gentiles who have no fathers in the Old Testament, with whom no covenants were ever made, without Christ and without God in the world, well, we are just marching up to this and saying, Lord, that suits me. So it does. in the next is this. It wasn't really addressed to the, to Ephesus. It was addressed to the saints which are in Ephesus. Now, just a word there. There are some folks i rather hesitant about using the word saint of a person like you, or particularly of a person like me. Well, that's right to be a bit modest. But, we are not saints in the scriptures by what we've achieved. We are saints because we're redeemed by our precious blood. Or we may be very unsanctified sometimes in our thoughts and words and deeds, but that's the progressive side. And you will be well to alter in your mind when you read in Romans or in Corinthians, called to be faith. Now that's misleading. The words to be are not the observe, they're in Italian. So it's not something in future, it's the other way around. You are faith by calling. But the next step should give us a little bit of moment, moment's pause. And to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Is every believing child of God naturally without the possibility of exception, are they all faithful? Now that's the thing that cannot be given to anybody, faithfully. You are either faithful or you're not, according to your own use of the grace that God you. So that's a little bit of a check to us, isn't it? And if anybody should say, you know, I don't see anything in the eagerness, well, be very gentle with him, very kind with him, and say, Fairly. it may be. You're stopping yourself. You say, why? Well, this is addressed to not only faith, but faithful. And if you're unfaithful in any relationship with regard to the trust that God has given us, you'll blind yourself to higher truth. Well, it would be immoral, wouldn't it, to keep on giving the truth upon truth if you never put it into practice and you don't stand for it. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. Well, as far as we can deal with this um, opening introduction, we now go to verses three to fourteen, which constitute the first section. And you will remember that we dealt with the um, verses three to fourteen, giving them a title: the Mumen Room. The Mumen Room is a rather ancient word. It means a safe place where you may keep precious documents. And we've got precious documents here that relate to the Father's will, the should we received because once we were slaves and now we set free, and then the title deeds that are waiting the day when we enter into our possessions. They're worth looking after, friends, aren't they? So we'll, we'll take them out and look at them, but we'll put them back again because they are confessions. In this um, set of documents, we've got, in verse 4, immutable grace. According as he has chosen us, immutable grace. And we've got an irreversible will having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ of Himself. And in verse nine we have unaltering counsel, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, and in verse eleven unalterable uh, purpose, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Well, that's only a way in which we are using words to say, here we are dealing with something which is coming down from above, not something which is going up in promise made by man. There's no fatalism about it, any more than there's any fatalism about a will that a man makes. I've heard people object that God has no right to choose anybody. But oh, I should I should be all surprised if uh, five minutes afterwards a lawyer approached him and told him that his uncle had died and he'd come in for a fortune, would he say, he has no right to leave me anything? He'd be an exception, wouldn't he? Would you see, God has a purpose. And although he has margins for the uh, various Ways in which human beings react. He's not going to allow the whole purpose of the ages to be suspended forever and wait for you. And so, he has a purpose. And without bludging in anybody into belief, or without compelling them against their will, he will have a glorious property in every sphere that is mapped out. And we shall be thankful for it in two weeks <laughs> still. There are no gifts. Or but, in this opening section, in some parts of the word of God, if, so-so, if-so-so, so, if-so-so, if-so-so. But there are no here. But I'll tell you what you do this, A strong emphasis upon the word has. To have something. Or he has done something. Shall we just run over that quickly? Verse 3. Let it be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. He's not going to in some future time if you do something. Oh, he's blessing God in his Verse 4. According as he hath chosen us. Oh, yes, he's done it. He's not waiting for you to come up and vote for him. He hath chosen us. Verse 5. Having predestinated us all, he's done it. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. It looks as though it is a fact, isn't it? That there are no ifs, and contradictions. Oh, well, we'd better go on a bit further then. Verse 7, in whom we have redemption. Oh, yes, we have. And verse 8, wherein he hath a bounty toward us, he hath. And in verse 11, in whom also we have obtained any patience, we have. Well, that's a, that's a good number in, in those few verses, 3 to 14. Look at the number of times. So we could sing the opening words of one hymn that's in the popular hymn book, Blessed Assurance. Well, we could go on and say angels of at ending mm-hmm. and all that business, that's another matter. But Blessed Assurance comes from the fact that God has spoken and we believe His Word. The words that we often, that we meet in one or two places, according as, verse four, according as, is an <coughs> important word. Could be translated generally in harmony with. According to in harmony with. We are blessed in these heavenly places in harmony with <coughs> according that goes back before the foundation of the world. There may be disharmony with regard to the things outside and with regard to even Lord's own people and their response. But in the will of God, there's a harmony between his original will at the beginning and the unfolding of it as time comes. Well now, I think it's that, that what we must do is to observe the general construction of these verses 3 to 14. And the way in which we do it is to step back a little bit and look at it as a whole, not concentrating our attention on one particular word, but seeing that there's something in it which seems to subdivide it, so that we may put one piece over against another and by their relationship learn. Yes, there is. Verse 6 and verse 12 and verse 14 have a refrain. Here it is. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, unto the praise of his glory. You see, the words there here we did, uh, but they break this up into three parts. Unto the praise of his glory. Unto the praise of the glory of his grace. So we say, well now, alright, what what is the first section? Verses 3 to 6. Well, who is the one that is being spoken to and spoken of? Well, it's the Father. Blessed be is the God and Father. It's He's the one. He's the, he is the choosing. He is the predestinating. He made us accepted. But don't you know the strange in this section? Not a word about sin. Not a word about redemption. Not a word about believing. This is the will of the Father. I think we can agree that that's a human title. I invented it as far as I know, but somebody else is just as free to invent it if they will. But that sums it up a little bit for us. All right, we put it there. The will of the Father. And the legal term that will have to be explained is the word adoption. The will of the Father giving us adoption. Before we get to it, most of us know that it doesn't mean that when we get to glory... We're all going to think we're in a glorified Dr. Bernardos. But that idea of adoption never enters into the Bible. It is something even over and above being a child of God. But that's, we've got to remain to make sure that we come along together. This is a glorious thing. Not a poor little wife and stray being brought in and given a secondary place in a family and looked down upon all the time. No. It's a dignity. So that's the first great document in this price set. The terms of our adoption, making us not only sons, as it means, but heirs of God. Well, now the next document is waiting for us in verse 7. And the moment we get to the verse 7, we're dealing with sin and salvation. Uh, Not so much salvation, that's coming presently, but the basis of our salvation, redemption. First of all, we have chosen Then we are redeemed, in whom we have redemption. Now, do notice this, friends. While it is perfectly true uh, that the teaching of Scripture moves from law to grace, and as you come along the Old Testament into the New, you come from ceremonial, until at last you reach a, a calling where all ceremony has east. You remember in Colossians it says, Well, if this is your calling, let no man judge you with regard to meat or drink or holy day or the Sabbath. There are shadows of things to come, the body is of Christ. But, at the very same time that we all agree that there's a high spiritual character about these epistles, which is about the zenith of the teaching of Scripture. It doesn't justify the idea that because we've now reached a high spiritual ground, we can now say that we've done with the barbaric idea of being redeemed by precious blood. That remains exactly the same. Peter says so. You remember in Peter, with the passage we read together just now, he speaks about the precious blood of Christ, but he puts his finger on the need for redemption, not so much from sin. The first thing he says, you redeem from the vain traditions of your fathers. That's what he emphasizes, first of all, there. But you see, we had no vain traditions of our fathers that were in that. Neither our fathers nor their traditions had a word to say with regard to the question of our sin and its need of redemption. But we need it just the same. And it's not a spiritualized redemption. It's not merely that we just believe and therefore we are saved. We must believe something. The New Testament and the Old Testament alike will not permit anybody to say they only believe because that's just sheer nonsense. You cannot just believe. You must believe somebody or something. And here we have right into the very first chapter that our redemption is by blood. The difference between the old and the new is this, that the Old Testament, it was the blood of bulls and goats which could never take away sin, which were only fingerposts pointing on to the one sacrifice offered once and forever by the Savior himself. And this is effective in every calling. A kingdom of priests on the earth, on the earth, will say presently, Unto him that loved us, and loosed us from our sins in his own blood, and made us a kingdom of priests, to him be drawn on the earth. Or when you get to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly calling, you'll read that we have come unto Mount Zion, unto the innumerable company of angels, and so it goes on, unto the one mediator, and the blood which speaketh better things than of amour, is there, in that second calling. And here in Ephesians, and again in Colossians, in the third and the highest calling, you still need the blood of Christ. Oh, I'm thankful I don't have to rub this in, but it's necessary for us to make it plain, isn't it? Because, you see, there is such a tendency to whittle down these essential features. So we have rejection through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And then, after dealing about the uh reading about the inheritance which is involved, we come to the third section. So I call this one the work of the sun redemption. And this is speaking honestly, redemption is not possible except by the Son. It's no good saying all things are possible with God, for God cannot contradict himself. The work of the Son is the redeeming element. And so, Hebrew says, seeing it is not possible for the blood of wolves and goats to take away sin, then he said, A body shall prepare me, lo I come. A body. So we must have a body. We must have a Christ who is a man. For so the Scripture again says, as by man came death. By man must come the resurrection of the dead. So, in every way, we have the Son now coming into the central section, and it's His work that is the basis of redemption. Well, now we move once work to the confirmation of this, verses 13 and 14. In whom he also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You notice in Peter that we were reading, the end is of the salvation of your souls. You'll search in vain to find the salvation of a soul in any epistle of Paul that's written along these lines. He speaks about it when he writes to the Hebrews, but they belong to the Peter side. So don't mix up terms, keep them where they are, and then you'll be saved a good deal with anxiety. The gospel of your salvation, in whom all shall after this which you us healed with that Holy Spirit of Christ, earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the conscious possession unto the fragrance of his glory. So we call that well, as we've got the letter W in the will and the letter W in the work, we give it again the witness of the Spirit. Well, that's easy to remember, is it? The will of the Father, the work of the Son, the witness of the Spirit. What well, have we got so far, we must come back and see a little more carefully what Uh, blessings are in store for us, what words are used with regard to our calling, and so on. When we look at the will of the Father, in verses 3 to 6, we may ask a question, what? And we find the answer is all spiritual blessings. If we say, where? We find that in heavenly places. If we say when we are taken back before the foundation of the world, and for what purpose we are focused attention, our attention not on that very peculiar word adoption. So should we now commence examining a little carefully these priceless things written in these priceless documents that belong to us by the mercy of God? We're not going to be granted time and thought to make these passages as real and as true as it's possible with regard to the consciousness of our own priority and inability. The first thing that I think we do well to, to notice is this. That he doesn't say Oh God, bless me. It says, no. The very first note that's struck in this epistle is a person so full that he's got nothing to ask for, and he turns round and looks into the face of his father, and he says, "Blessed be God." I think that's a good start, don't you? It takes the course. In our Wednesday meetings, we have been giving attention a little bit to certain aspects of truth in the Psalms, and there is one Psalm when it says, "Hear my cry, O God." And I was quite prepared to consider that that word cry was equivalent to calling in despair or seeking relief or even shedding tears. But to my astonishment I discovered that that word is translated practically always triumph, singing, rejoicing, that particular word. And it was a review to me and I believe it was a good one. The psalmist says, before ever I'm going to start moaning or crying in the ordinary sense, I'm going to remind you and remind myself that it's a poor idea that we never come into the presence of God and talk to him unless we're everlastingly up to our neck in trouble and we're asking for something. Prayer, friends, is something infinitely more than beggary. I was very much misunderstood when I said that one. I don't mean to say that prayer isn't legitimate asking. It is. But it's more than that, friends. If you've got nothing to ask God for, you needn't stay away. Perhaps he's waiting for you to come and say, Blessed be God. It can mean it, of course. Well, this man evidently meant it. The first word he utter[s] in revealing this new mighty truth is we are in such a position We are so filled with with the blessings which God has given us, that instead of asking for more, we turn round and thank him with all our hearts. It's good also to know this. (laughs) There are two words translated, blessing, in the New Testament. One that comes in the Sermon on the Mount would perhaps be better translated, happy. Except the word happy is not a very happy word to use. Because the word "happy" in our language is a derivative of something that happens—that's putting it upon the basis of chance—but that isn't so. But the word here is a deeper word than the word "happiness." This remains whether you're happy or miserable. This remains unaltered, and this word has kept, come into our language. The word in the uh, word that is used here is the word eulogia, or eulogia. Or we pronounce it a eulogism, or a eulogium. Uh, it means to say, to speak well. Of course, it's so often abused now, and used at an after-dinner, when everybody's merry, as they say, and you never believe things they say about a person, when they're eulogising. And that means to say that it's discounted, and it doesn't mean very much. But there's no false meaning to this word. This word is uttering truth. And the, the real basic meaning of this word, uh, to speak well, is, it's not like to speak well. E-U is the word that means well or good. It comes in the word evangel, E-U or "ev," And Lovio means to speak and the first thing he says to you and me, he says, Oh, speak well of God. But he has spoken well of you. Well, you know, he's worthy of being spoken well of, isn't he? But can't see God speaking well of me? What's his basis? How does he do it? How can he do it? But all the way through, the one thing is that he's never treating you outside of Christ. Look at the way the word in Christ comes. Even if you keep only to those which are translated in, there are enough of them. First of all, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ, according as He has chosen us in Him. And then you have verse 7, in whom we have redemption. And on and on, in Christ, in Him, in whom, you'll go on right to the end. That's our sphere. So there's no pretense about it. He can speak well of us, for he's made us accepted in the beloved, the one with whom he was indeed well pleased. So we say, blessing be God. Makes me think of the story that we've heard so many times of the old man and his wife, simple Country Fair, Somebody tried to provoke them a little bit, make them jealous, as they sat watching the big motor cars sweep by their little cottage door and smother them with a good deal of dust. But still, there yeah, they were. But he said, oh no, oh no. And this is the way the old man answered it. He said, look, David, I don't envy these people. He says, God is my Father. Christ is my Saviour. Heaven is my home. They can have the rest. Of oh, course, didn't give them much, did he? They can have the rest. He said, I do them. If that's all they've got, oh well, all right, let them have it. You see, if once we realise our calling, we shan't sit with Asaph outside the sanctuary, we shall go in with him time. If we don't see the wonder of our calling, We may be stumbled sometimes when we see the prosperity of the gift and we see the ungodly things. but when we go into the sanctuary of God oh, we say, I see, I see. So here we are in the sanctuary of God and we're actually in this first note not of asking, not of begging, but of acknowledging. Blessed be Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath done something. Who hath blessed us. Same word. Coming back the other way. Who hath blessed us. Would our faith stay stay there? And That would have been wonderful enough. To think that God could bless us at all is enough to set our hearts singing. But I suppose we are so overwhelmed with what we read that we don't even see. We are struck dumb. Well, don't let's be dumb all the time, friends. Let's revive a little bit sometimes, so that he'll know we do appreciate them. So how does it go on? Who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Hmm. Um, I'm hesitating a bit about going into the use of the Greek language. I've got to watch that I don't load this meeting and the recording too much. (coughs) But I think you could take it from me and then search for yourself if you will. That when we notice that the word blessing here is in the singular, and our version puts it in the plural, and we're going to keep strictly to what God says, we've got to revise our translation of it. We're not losing anything. Because we can either say all spiritual blessings we don't know how many they are, but we say, well, there may be four or five or twenty, we don't know. All spiritual blessings, we don't know. But suppose we put it as Paul put it. With every blessing that is spiritual, how many are they? God alone knows. But every blessing that is spiritual is ours, even though we've never heard of it, even though we shouldn't recognize it yet. Now that's the overwhelming position we occupy. blessing that can come under the denomination of spiritual. But you say but surely that is true of every corner. If you look back, say, to the days of Abraham, wasn't Abraham a spiritual man? Wasn't the sweet singer of Israel, David, a spiritual man? Wasn't Isaiah, the prophet, a spiritual man? you, I say, you're asking me, how do I know? You say, but I thought you knew, but I only know what God has said. Well, what has he said? Oh, Now you're asking the right question. You're asking me whether whether Abraham was a spiritual man, and as God has never said yes or no, I can't answer you. But I'll tell you what I can say. I've looked right through the Old Testament, every book of it, every chapter of it, and the only occurrence of the word spiritual man is in an obscure passage which says, the spiritual man is mad. That's all it says in the Old Testament. So it doesn't mean our word spiritual at all. It means a man who's possessed of a spirit. In other words, we use the word spiritual a little bit too freely. What would you say? Surely, this word, spiritual blessing, has been something which is sanctified, something which is holy something which is divine. Well, friends, don't let's go outside the epistle to the Ephesians and turn to the last chapter, will you? Chapter 6. And we'll do as you suggest. We'll change the word spiritual and we'll say holy or sanctified or divine. Verse 12, chapter 6. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against holy, divine, wickedness in high places. Well, that defeats itself. It's impossible, isn't it? I see, I see. The only other places where we get this word spiritual in this epistle is chapter 5, 19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and mighty melody in our heart of the Lord. Well, that's all right, that's straightforward. But how could you say wickedness is spiritual? Well, you can only say it if you don't mean what some people mean, what is God mean? Well, the only way in which you can discover a meaning of a passage like this is to discover its alternative or opposite. Let me give you an old stock illustration. In a passage in the Epistle to the Corinthians, two Corinthians that the Apostle uses the word light. What is the opposite of the word light? What would you say? You don't mind being a fool for Christ's sake, do you? <laughs> hey? no. Well, I said, oh no, no. And I quote the words, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. But supposing you've been wise, you'd you said, Wait. I said, oh no, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, so I've got you anyway. Why? Because you do not know what I mean by the word light until you know whether I mean an opposite of darkness or an opposite of light. Don't you see? How do I know what spiritual means if I haven't got any conception of its alternative? At another meeting, I think I've a little bit of philosophy, which I've puzzled out myself. That the pursuit of truth and the seeking of truth and the establishing of truth turns out after all in realizing relationships. Well indeed, If I realize the relationship of spiritual, I know what So in this verse it says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood wickedness, but against spiritual wickedness its alternative is not good or or bad, yeah, it's precious blood. What happens? When we come to the old peace, we discover that things were not people we in the really things that we to make them. They we've they them in the basket and store and so on. Suppose we get that is back 28. And the man who wrote the edition of the, the Ephesians, he knew his book. And he did not a of Jesus the And he was, you see, under the law we had done type of things, but under what I to you we an the extremely opposite, a different part of it. You And it shall come to pass with that which happens the voice of the Lord thy God, to will with all his commands which are from our healing side. the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth, and all these things shall come the country, under the voice of the Lord thy God. Here a let him shut down in the city, let him shut down in the field, let him put the fruit of our the fruit of ground, Verse five blessings to be my basket and my store. But a blessing in basket and store is not spiritual blessing. They're physical blessing. But they're right, they're proper, they're true, they're good. But writing to the Ephesians he's reminding them. He's reminding them. But he's not going to guarantee that his faith will endorse the teaching, of the mystery revealed in Ephesians 3, they'll be blessed in basket and in store. Because he, he says, say, I'm writing from prison straight off, and I've got overflowing it, I've just got enough to scrape through and live on, that's all. And you will discover in his own description of himself that he an awful time of it. Let's come to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This same man who is describing something to the character of our death. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Even before he got to the Ephesians calling, he would have taught us if we'd have asked him that he doesn't necessarily follow that because I believe Christ, I'm going to have full abundance in this life. He says, friends, if that's what you're after, I'm afraid you're in for an awful job. So let him speak for himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. (laughs) He says, verse 9, For I think that God has set forth us the apostles' now, as it were appointed to death. Now he's using a figure which they would understand. In the great arenas, the sports, the coliseums, the amphitheaters of these ancient days, they would have certain... uh, Conflicts and combats going on, but all the crowd knew that they, that was only a little bit of a preparation. They were beginning to get worked up, and at last they called for blood, and they wouldn't be denied. And when that they came, they trooped out into the arena, criminals of different characters, who were never going to leave it alive, they knew it. They were doomed. Every one of them are going to be put to death in one way or another. So he says, I think that's what we are. We, apostles, have been reserved last, appointed to death. For we are made a, now our version says technical. Greek version tells you that's the word theater. We are made like a public theater to the world, to angels, and to men. For we are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honourable we are despised. Even out of this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked and buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. Hence, you read verse eleven over against Deuteronomy twenty-eight? I will bless you in basket and in store. And hear this man, he says he's been hungry and thirsty and naked and buffeted and are no certain dwelling place. Labour, working with our own hands, being reviled, be blessed. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we treat, and now he gets to the deepest depth of all. We are made as not guilt, but the world, and are the off of all things unto this day. And that man was rejoicing in Christ. And he was going on further. So does he? Nobody would ever be justified in telling a person that once he believed the teaching of Ephesians, it was roses, roses all the way. No no. Chances are you're heading for trouble if you do believe the teaching. Down here and any amount of God's people who've come up to a certain point, they said, you know what, that rather appeals to me the teaching of that wonderful epistle and they begin to enter into it. But they don't get very far because other beings begin to have a, a word to say. Perhaps the meeting they belong to frowns upon it. And to be excommunicated is something that they're not wanting to anticipate. Or it may interfere with some business connection. It may put them out of court in somewhere else. Oh, yes, you've got no guarantee that because you believe this and you're in harmony with the mind and purpose of God. That you're going to be exempt from trouble in this world. This is a battleground of light and darkness, good and evil. And if we're on the Lord's side, well, because we have the assurance of victory. But he, the mighty victor, he stooped to death, even the death of the cross. And so we do well to watch these things and wait them. So we come back again. Spiritual blessings. Let's notice the way in which the Apostle has contrasted spiritual with fleshly or other meanings in other passages besides that one in Ephesians. It's good to get double-checks. Let's look at Romans, shall we? Chapter 7. Romans, chapter 7. Verse 14. Speaking of himself, he says we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. So he's put the contrast. The law is spiritual and I am fleshly, one against the other. Or should we look at chapter 15, 27? He's now speaking about the contribution which the Gentiles were making to the poor saints who were living at Jerusalem. 27. He has please them very big, and they are dead as they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister out of these carnal things. So the word carnal can sometimes be quite an innocent word. The carnal things, something to eat, something to drink, that was on a low plane. The spiritual things which I received were on a high plane. But they are contrasted, nevertheless. And one other passage while about it, 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter, verse 44. Speaking of the resurrection, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. Well, that word natural has to do with a soul, a soulish body. But the New Testament says that the risen life, the resurrection, is a spiritual body. And again in verse 46, speaking of Adam, how be it that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earth The second man is the Lord of heaven. So, you see, we've got to watch the use of this word spiritual, that we don't invest it with a meaning foreign to its nature, and by so doing, rob ourselves of its truth. So we come back to Ephesians, and we look at it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, in Christ. Well, now, we haven't got very much time left, and I don't want to rush this study and so spoil So I'm going to just anticipate our next study by one or two observances and references, and then we shall have to come back to it, God willing, next time. These spiritual lessons, very peculiar. Are to be enjoyed somewhere. All blessings are to be enjoyed somewhere. In the Old Testament, the land of promise, described as a land flowing with milk and honey, where they were going to be blessed in basket and in store, that was their sphere. Or those who had the right and prospect of the heavenly Jerusalem to walk the golden streets and enter the gates of pearl, that was where. They would enjoy their blessings. Well, now these spiritual blessings are to be enjoyed somewhere called heavenly faith. Now, it's again easy to be mistaken. I've read in print that I've made a dreadful mistake because i said that the word heavenly doesn't occur anywhere else except in the epistle to the Ephesians. What anybody knows, that's right. You read about the Heavenly Father in the Gospels, and you read the war, Heavenly comes in the Epistle to the Hebrews, it's in the New Testament, all over the place. You see, when a person's wanting to criticize somebody else, sometimes he's not so careful to be quite right on the nail, as long as he says something to stop you. What I said was this, that while the word heavenly occurs In many, many places. The expression, in heavenly places, is never found anywhere else except in Ephesians. Now, in the heavenly places is a phrase, you see. We're not saying the word heavenly doesn't come because it must come, it does come. But this isn't saying heavenly, this is saying where, where, in heavenly places. Would you say the word where isn't there? No, but the companion epistle is in Set your affection on things above where Christ sits at the right hand of God and where he sits at the right hand of God is in heavenly places. So should we group down as our closing thought before we cease this meeting and prepare for the next one? Should we get the five occurrences of any choice echo, anyways in the heavenly places which occur in the New Testament and occur nowhere else? Well we're not going to go outside the teaching. They all found the five of them in this one book. Chapter 1, towards the close of the chapter. <coughs> Speaking of the power which was wrought in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand. Where is that? In these heavenly places. Oh, that's good, I know where I am then. I'm assured that these heavenly places is the right hand of God. And that's where Christ ascended and sat down. The next reference is chapter 2. It says, verse 5 Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by gracious deeds, and has raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Oh, that's astounding, isn't it? It's wonderful enough to see that our Saviour ascended and sat down. But we are so associated with Him in the mind of God that when He died, we are reckoned to have died too, and buried with Him, and raised with Him, and seated with Him in heavenly places. Never such an expression as that found anywhere in the whole range of the Word of God. Or again, we come in chapter Chapter 3, verse 10. To the intent that now, out of the principalities and powers, in heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. That's marvellous, isn't it? These principalities and power infinitely above angels are learning by the Church. If we have to learn from them, wouldn't you? That we know something they do not know. We, know. we know the power of redeeming love which they do not know. We can sing a song that perhaps no angel will ever sing. We should be able to sing the new song of redeeming grace. Of course, it's it's good never to have fallen. But it's wonderful after you've fallen to realise that you haven't fallen so far that God can't bring you back. That gives you this song of thanksgiving. And these mighty powers are learning through the Church the manifold wisdom of God. And then, in chapter 5, chapter 6, we have one we will have to just mention it today and explain it a little bit more fully next time. Verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principality, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high-margin, heavenly places. Well, leaving that it stands, that seems very wonderful and yet very strange. Is it possible that where Christ sits at the right hand of God, there are wicked spirits and warfare going on. Well, if that's the case, James, it looks as though it's not going to be so different after all when we get there, doesn't it? I don't mean to say you'll feel at home because there's a round going on up there, but I do think, friends, we've got to watch our step over this verse. But I'm not going to spoil it. I'm going to let you wonder how you're going to get over it or under it because I want to set it out a bit more carefully, God willing, next time. But I do trust Don't let that stop you. I do trust that you're beginning to enter in to the magnificence of this teaching. Or can you not, at the end of this meeting, begin to say to yourself, Yes, I too can say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has endowed me like this, blessed me like this, and blessed me there in Christ Jesus.